Klobuchar probably has one of the best electability arguments in the field. So the fact that she's tied for last here in the polls is a sign that voters don't really think about electability in the same way that political analysts do. That's what I would be saying if I were uh, 538 pollster Nate Silver (laughs) uh, leading into tonight's Democratic debate. Yeah, folks, we're here. We're doing kind of uh, something a little different. I guess kind of a live reaction type thing. We a Michael just... and us special report. It's a reaction video. It's like when uh, a cool dude watches a Star <laughs> Wars trailer and he films his reaction to it. Yeah, I don't think we've done this before. You know, something as kind of rapid response uh, We did watch one of the West Wing debates, I think. One of the fake yeah. debates from the West Wing. We watched... Uh, what, the, one of the Kerry Bush debates from 2004? And certainly this fits within our purview because we did watch a piece of audiovisual entertainment, uh, <laughs> a, a filmed thing with a beginning, a middle, and it an is end. A, it is a text. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, we're, and it's a text that we're going to deconstruct for all of you, even though you probably just watched it yourself. And mark my words, this one's going to stand the test of time. It is... <laughs> What day is this? This is September the 12th, I believe, of 2019. And this is the whatever number it was, Democrat (laughs) debate. The third? Yeah, sure. Well, (laughs) so we're we're at the point, if people are listening to this 50 years from now, and I mean, (laughs) who wouldn't be listening to this 50 years from now? I mean, an ephemeral podcast from 2019. If anything was built to last, it's this. Well, I mean, they won't remember our podcast, but what they will remember is all of the important, you know, statesmen, statespeople that were on the stage tonight, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, all all the greats. People that, you know, 50 years from now will have carved, will have etched their names into history itself. We started watching this, and I mean, the moment you suggested it, I knew that this was a bad idea. And then as we started watching it, I thought, how did I ever get roped into this? This is a nightmare. This is hell. This is, I think, maybe the longest thing we've ever watched for the podcast. And yeah, what else do you say about it? There was nothing in it I liked or enjoyed. <laughs> you know, watching these things, so I've watched the last two professionally for, for, for work because I've written about them after. And I guess, I mean, it's two, but it's actually four because in, until now there were like two nights, right? So you had to watch, like it's usually a Wednesday, Thursday because there were like 20 candidates. Now we're down to 10, but the stage is still the same size because there's still 10 people they can fit on a stage. It would be so much better, honestly, if they chopped it up into two nights and there were five people on the stage. And maybe just chopped it up into one night, frankly. And chop it up into one night and have uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden debate since none of these other people are going anywhere. I, I You know what I say? Uh, keep Cory Booker in there. I like the guy. <laughs> yeah, Will's developed a little bit of a crush on Cory Booker, and uh, this... This may have something to do with the fact that midway through the debate, Cory Booker dropped a reference to the film Street Fight, the Oscar-nominated film Street Fight, which, of course, we covered ourselves a few episodes back with my colleague Branko Marchetich. And uh, I actually tweeted about this uh, during the debate, and it was liked by the filmmaker of Street Fight, who perhaps didn't grasp the irony, but in his defense has probably never heard the Michael and Us podcast. Uh, yeah, this question that Cory Booker was responding to was a question about resilience <laughs> and how each of the candidates has, I, I guess, displayed resilience. Yeah, in lieu of, of concluding statements, uh, we're, we're going to get to the meat of the debate in a sec, folks, but in lieu of concluding statements, 
they ask this kind of very like self-helpy question about uh-huh. like how do you define professional resilience or and, something? And Cory Booker said, "Well, you know, I bet a I bet a lot of people here will know about my own uh, resilience because not a lot of people fail as spectacularly as I did. In fact, it was even documented in a." Academy Award-nominated documentary. And at this point, Cory Booker may as well have been aiming straight for the Michael and Us demographic, (laughs) like (laughs) micro-targeting. I I was so happy to hear him talk about Street Fight, which I still think is one of, like, in the top third of movies we've watched. What I want to know is when one of the, you know, when is one of the Democratic contenders going to name-drop Michael Moore's hit film Slacker Uprising? We do need to get into, just before we get to the debate, we do need to get into this Nate Silver tweet that you you because i mean that is so funny well can you, yeah, can, you read, I, I, can you read it one more time just just for posterity it does get, it enter do, it into the record it does bear repeating this is from today uh nate <laughs> after posting a poll he said klobuchar probably has one of the best electability arguments in the field so the fact that she's tied for last here is a sign that voters don't really think about electability in the same way the political analysts do now there, there's certainly a kernel of truth to that tweet. so this is one of those a lot going on there kind of <laughs> moments so what i love about that okay so i mean where do you begin with this right Electability is literally, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nonsensical concept, but if it means anything, it means, you know, your number of people. Yeah, you're just appeal, right? And the, the conceit here is that Klobuchar has the best argument for having a wide appeal and yet no one likes her. What could this mean? (laughs) You know, Nate, this is one of those great tweets where he, he gets so close to just realizing that his entire worldview is wrong and then just doesn't quite get there. You know, it's all, how, what is the last, the last kind of arc of it? Um, it's a sign voters don't really think about electability in the same way that political analysts do, yeah. It's almost as if political analysts are often, you know, kind of people that live in like metropolitan areas and erects like elaborate systems of thought to justify the politics they would have anyway. Almost. You know, we we haven't talked a lot about Nate Silver on this podcast. We'll get to it. Uh, can I ask you briefly, yeah. how, how would you describe his appeal? Because I know yeah. that uh, his appeal is that he accurately guessed that Obama would win okay. the second time around. Okay, which, yeah. We, we had I mean, a, a modern Nostradamus, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Will and I had dinner before the, the podcast, and we were, we were talking about Nate Silver, as, as we're wont to do um, on these occasions. But yeah, I mean, so basically Nate Silver, and people probably will remember him maybe from 2012 or maybe before that. But yeah, his big thing was being the data guy, right? Like mm-hmm. data data journalism, like he's bringing, he's bringing stats into the realm of politics. And uh, yeah, initially, you know, his pitch was, look, I'm not that interested in politics, right? I mean, as, as I interpreted it, what he was saying is kind of like, I'm coming to this without like the prejudices that mm-hmm. you'd like associate. Pure with. fact. Yeah. And yeah, as you said, he did accurately predict the, you know, Obama-Romney election. And I mean, um, you know, it's a kind of 50-50 <laughs> type situation now. I mean, I think he did get most or all of the states correctly. So, uh, you know, that's that's something. But I mean, then again, like... 
you know, there's just a handful of states that switch, you know, especially in, you know, the pre-2016 mm-hmm. world, just a handful of states that switch, so it's not that impressive. And so then he pulled it off again in 2016, right? right? <laughs> well, right, right. So the, thing, the great thing about Nate Silver is that he's never wrong. Right. Um, and this is a this is documented fact. As I have learned from any time I've, like, issued a modest criticism or maybe barbed him, very gently on social media website twitter.com because like uh, Elon Musk he's got a, you know a crew of people that will just come in and kind of defend his honor like a special kind of celebrity is the type that has people like you know a lot of celebrities I think name search right but mm-hmm. then there's a, a the next level is where people name search on your behalf and I think <laughs> Nate Silver's fans are kind of like that because what Nate Silver does with his predictions is he will do these probabilities so he'll be like, Bernie Sanders has only a 2% chance of winning Michigan and, and, and uh, Hillary Clinton has a 98% chance of winning or something like that. And the great thing about that is, I mean, what he's really saying is that Hillary Clinton's going to win mm-hmm. Michigan. But because it's a probability, you know, he's leaving open the possibility that something else might happen. So when I have pointed out this uh, on Twitter, I get like Nate Silver stands being like, um, don't you understand how probabilities work, statistics work? It's like, okay, so uh, as long as he leaves open like a 0.1%, possibility of a different outcome than the one he's like heavily leaning towards, essentially anything he says is just unfalsifiably correct. That's how that's worse. But I mean, basically his arc is that he's sort of morphed gradually into just like a standard liberal pundit, right? And that Klobuchar tweet is a really good example of that because you know Klobuchar I think we've talked about this uh, on an earlier episode is you know the perfect example of the kind of just mediocre beltway politician that is just absolutely beloved of you know beltway media types people that live in DC people that live in New York City there was a column uh, I think we talked about a while ago by uh, David Leonard in the New York Times where he was uh, talking about how the two candidates that keep Donald Trump up most at night are John Hickenlooper and Amy Klobuchar, Mm -hmm. because they are, as he put it, middle-class fighters. Now, how does he define middle-class fighters? He says, well, um, they're people that speak to the bread and butter issues that ordinary folks care about. So they speak to healthcare, whatever that fuck that means. They they (laughs) finally somebody is speaking to healthcare. They speak to it. They speak to affordability. They can't stop speaking to things that people care about. But he qualifies. They are they they are prudent enough to not pitch things that are unrealistic. Yeah. Because so they're the realists, and that is why Donald Trump is waking up in cold sweats thinking about Amy Klobuchar and John Hickenlooper, one of whom has already dropped out. But seriously, like, imagine the world that you'd have to live in to think that Donald Trump is afraid of Amy Klobuchar, or to think that like a politician like that is a threat to anything or that there's anything kind of laudable or exciting. I mean, there are plenty of politicians that that share Amy Klobuchar's boring politics, but I would say that she is even more affected than than like a lot of other people that that are kind of as equally bad as she is. I mean, she is kind of a virtuoso uh, of these like obviously canned one-liners that she even delivers with sort of like these comedic pauses. Like she does like they're like timed, mm-hmm. you know, like in the first debate, she had this thing about how Donald Trump was all foam and no beer. And I feel like tonight, every single thing she said was like that. And unfortunately, the networks have not yet produced a rush transcript of the debate. If they do later in the episode, we'll uh, 
while we're recording. I'm going to come back to that because Klobuchar had some great lines tonight. She's a modern day Cicero. I think that's interesting that you should say that because this is where I think we're going to disagree a little bit because oftentimes we all know that we uh, are in our bubbles too much and we're only associating with like-minded people. We're not hearing the ideas of, of the people around us. And one of the refreshing things about tonight's debate was being able to hear from a range of viewpoints. And that's why I'm I'm happy to endorse Amy Klobuchar for president of the United States. Okay, so here here are a few of her. Uh, so they, there is now a transcript, by the way. Uh, nice. not, I don't. Uh, I mean, as memorable as all of these are, uh, I, I, I couldn't uh, summon them from memory. So in her opening statement, uh, she said, I may not be the loudest person up here, but I think we've already got that in the White House. <laughs> Hell yeah. Then she said, Houston, we have a problem. Because the debate was in Houston, right? Oof. We have a guy that is literally running our country like a game show. He would rather lie than lead. I think we need something different. Later in the conversation on trade, he, Donald Trump, has put us in the middle of this trade war and he's treating our farmers and our workers like poker chips in one of his bankrupt casinos. And if we are not careful, he is going to bankrupt this country. (laughs) Um, And there's a couple more of these things. Uh, I mean, and, you know, in Klobuchar's defense, more than one candidate uh, is prone to this, although from what I've observed, she's uh, more prone to it than anyone else. But what's great is media people see this and they're like, wow, that's a really good line. And I don't know if people saw it, but... uh, in at the last Democratic debate, the New York Times afterwards posted this thing that was like all of their op-ed columnists like reacting to the debate, mm-hmm. just kind of like coming up with these takes. And it what really was an incredible insight into how these people who are, you know, opinion formers, tastemakers, who have these huge platforms, how arbitrarily they think about, you know, these events. It's just kind of these canned, you know, very thoughtless reactions to things. You know, it's using these very superficial criteria uh you know they're all they're all very upset about bernie sanders that he's always yelling which chris saliza was also very upset about tonight you had a chris saliza thing oh right? well you, i mean i uh you're a big chris saliza fan i i was uh, hoping to crib some insights from this chris saliza has just come out with his list for cnn of winners and losers from the third democratic presidential debate mm-hmm. which i hope this may help guide our conversation help let us know who the winners are. Yeah, well, and I mean, Will were. and I are simple people, so, like, we, we defer to an expert about uh, this. The top 10 Democratic candidates shared a single debate stage for the first time in the 2020 race, trading body blows while drawing stark contrasts on issues like health care and criminal justice reform. The winners, uh, Joe Biden. Um, the first 30 minutes of this debate, typically the time with the highest viewership, were Biden's best moments of the entire campaign. Uh, he didn't stumble as he had in previous debates. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Biden is basically what Sarah Palin was in 2008. It's like it's like when when he's not like literally like falling apart, then it's like he's the winner. That's the rule. The, the second one is uh, Beto O'Rourke. Sure. Um, number third, a bit of a curveball here, Barack Obama. Oh, uh, yeah. See, this is why Chris Liz is a true virtuoso, because he can take, you know, a very conventional medium like like a pundit reacting to a debate and he's bending the form it's very avant-garde because you see barack obama wasn't even in the debate was he but he so is, how is he the winner well Explain he to is me. the single most popular democratic politician in the country and biden very smartly embraced obama's <laughs> eight years as president um uh, you know who, warts and all basically who is, who is the next winner will the fourth and final winner was uh, specifically kamala harris's opening statement <laughs> 
Uh, and so not a candidate, but a candidate, just a particular like set of words uttered by a candidate. Uh, he said, I thought a bunch of the California senators prepared one-liners, and she had a lot of them, fell flat. But, and the but was in all caps there, Harris dedicating her entire opening statement to directly addressing Trump was smart. <laughs> Sure, and, why not? and her closing line, and now President Trump, you can go back to watching Fox News, was a huge applause line in the room and will likely be replayed dozens of times over the next 24 hours. No one's going to remember that in 24 hours. So count, count on it. So here are the losers. Uh, Julian Castro. I mean, I think no, I know. No, no debate for me. I think I know what he's, he's going to do here. Let me guess. He's angry because Julian Castro said that thing to Biden. Uh, In fact, yes. Unfortunately for Castro, he went way too hard at Biden on the age issue with his are you forgetting line that he repeated four times. The attack wound up making Biden look sympathetic. Uh, Okay, can can we stop here for a sec? So the attack wound up making Biden look sympathetic. Note note the language here. It's like this kind of meta language delivered in this like (laughs) this this sort of remove as if Chris Eliza isn't the one telling us what his opinion on the debate is. It made Biden look sympathetic. I mean, he's not saying I thought it made Biden look sympathetic. It's uttered as this as this objective truth. And this is like a feature of this kind of punditry. It's these kind of reactions where, you know, it's people giving you what is actually their opinion, but then it's it's spoken as if it's an appeal to this kind of objective truth that we all kind of accept. Y- it made Biden me look you sympathetic. Weren't, you weren't sad for the cuddly grandpa up there who was being... Uh, who, no, who, I certainly who, who, wasn't. Whose feelings were being hurt by that, that whippersnapper. <laughs> Uh, Who else was a loser? Uh, no, you didn't like Yang? Uh, Andrew Yang. And uh-huh. uh, I mean, I think I imagine there will be some consensus uh-huh. on uh, Andrew Yang's uh, Joker-like strategy of throwing money at the crowd. I'm not even sure it's legal. So the plot is that he's testing a pilot project where he's going to give some lucky winners $1,000 a month for a year. And you all have to go sign up on AndrewYang.com. <sighs> Which is obviously a data harvesting operation. Uh-huh. The third uh, winner, or loser, I mean, surprisingly, is Elizabeth Warren. Saliza says, the Massachusetts senator wasn't bad. She just wasn't super involved in the debate, which is weird given that she is widely seen as the strongest challenger to Biden at the moment. Widely seen by whom? Based on what metrics? Thanks. Great. Thanks. For a chunk. That's, that's what I'm talking about. For a chunk of the first hour of the debate, Warren sort of disappeared. Some of that is a function of not getting questions from the moderators, but Warren also needs to find her way into conversations, especially given how centrally located she was on the stage. Okay, so just completely arbitrary uh, nonsense there, okay? And and finally, another bit of a curveball for the fourth and final loser, which is uh, the economy. (laughs) Always a loser in my book. (laughs) Uh, yeah, well, when were they going to get to talking about the dang deficit? That's what I want to know. Saliza says this was a long debate. He had uh, six O's there. Mm-hmm. And we know that in election after election, voters say the state of the economy and how they feel about it personally has a huge impact on their vote, which makes the fact the economy wasn't the subject of a single question in that time remarkable. 
and uh, bad. Yeah, yeah. The, the, right. The state of the economy is on the mind of, of voters. So the, the, the economy. So, there, I mean, there were uh, other people in the debate who were not mentioned in Sleaze's roundup. I don't uh, think he mentioned uh, Cory Booker, did he? No, and Cory Booker got a lot of a lot of time. You're, you're just saying that because you 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 dig him. I think he's charming. You know, <laughs> I think I think if he if he sticks around at two percent, I find him kind of likable. But of course, the debate also had Mayor Pete. Of course, there was uh, Bernie Sanders, who do- <laughs> who whose presence, if not his actual words, dominated the first third of the debate yeah. about health care. Yeah, I mean, all these things are basically like taking all these like people that got into politics as like law and order Democrats, like the, you know, fuck schools, you know, let's privatize them, uh, you know, build more prisons and stuff. Everybody's, they're all, they're all woke now. Uh, the debate was moderated by a, a panel Friend of, of four, the show, George Stephanopoulos. Led by George Stephanopoulos, yeah. who I think his first question, I mean, honestly, he didn't spend a lot of time on the big three. Uh, Warren, Sanders, and Biden, but he started with them, and the opening question was something along the lines of, uh, are we going too far too fast? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it feels like almost trite to complain about this at this point, but these debates, the way that the cable networks like moderate these debates is so partisan. Like, it is so unbelievably biased, right? Because they will, like, what passes for kind of you know, hard-headed, you know, adversarial journalism is asking, like, you know, Elizabeth Warren or something. So, I mean, are people going to be worried that you're in bed with teachers unions, right? Yeah. And they'll never say to Joe Biden, you know, how can you, uh, you know, say that you care about X, Y, or Z and then go to these corporate fund... You know, you were at a climate town hall last week and then you went to a fundraiser hosted by the founder of a fossil fuel company. So how can anyone trust you on climate change? Like, mysteriously, you never uh, you never kind of hear that stuff. I do just want to say quickly, in, in a slight and very qualified defense of the Chris Eliza thing we were just making fun of, um, I can't stand Chris Eliza. I think he's like, you know, a metaphor for everything that's wrong with punditry. Um, although he is like fairly innocuous and people should probably refrain from being too mean to him. But he probably did bang that out. I mean, the debate has only been finished for like an hour. Mm-hmm. He probably banged that out in like about 20 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. as the debate was finishing. So, you know, respect the hustle in any case. Mm-hmm. I'm off from Jacobin this week, so I don't have to write anything about this debate, uh, which is why we could podcast about it. I'm looking at my notes and trying to piece together what the themes of the debate were. <laughs> there's, there's, You don't have a, you didn't write notes about who who are the winners and losers? Only God can judge. <laughs> uh, there's what unites us is more than what divides us. Uh, the, the moderator surprisingly harsh on Biden. Well, there was a, one of the moderators was from Univision because they were, you know, so it was like uh, ABC and Univision joint presentation. Um, and so the the moderator, one of the moderators was asking questions kind of on behalf of Latinx voters. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they were very harsh on Biden all in, of, in a good way. All of us on stage uh, would, of course, like universal health care. And we all have good intentions. And really what we got to do is stop fighting each other and, and go after the guy, the guy in the White House. Who Who is it? That that, I, I think that was uh, Cory Booker. Right. So, I mean, this is like, you know, these debates have certain notes that they almost always hit. Two candidates will get into it. And then the third one will intervene and we'll see. We'll say that right there, folks. That was everything that people are sick of hearing. Right. Mm-hmm. They, they want to hear. 
They want to hear about hope and optimism for the future. They're sick of hearing Washington politicians, mm-hmm. uh, you know, throw mud at each other or something. So Mayor Pete did that tonight. Mm-hmm. There were a couple other moments where people try to do that. Uh, now that Hickenlooper and Delaney are no longer on the stage, uh, Klobuchar kind of filled yeah. that function. Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, she's the sort of like NPC that's like left standing that fulfills that role of like, I'm the one who has the courage to defer to corporate interests and not make like un you know unrealizable promises or whatever. But I mean Biden does that too, but he doesn't mm-hmm. he does he's not running on that so explicitly because he's more of kind of a cipher candidate. Uh-huh. I think Klobuchar was the only one to get booed. Uh, she and Yang got booed. Yeah, there were, I mean, there were a few. There were, Biden, I mean, Biden got interrupted by protesters, right? At one oh, point, yeah. Which, which what were they protesting Allegedly about? about about DACA, but that hasn't been confirmed. That's what people on Twitter were saying. Right. And uh, Biden's teeth fell out, right? Or is that a conspiracy That's theory? Al- allegedly. Although, uh, you know, some uh, people, people can watch the clip and decide for themselves. Um, I do want to uh, just get to this thing that, that, so this question that Biden was asked, you know, so Chris Eliza was very impressed, as were some other people, um, by, you know, Biden's performance in the first, like, third of the debate, because he was seen to be more energetic. Um, I just want to read you, first, a question that was put directly to the former vice president and current Democratic frontrunner, Joseph Biden, and then I just want to read you verbatim his answer. This is going to take a minute, so bear with me. So this was the question. Mr. Vice President, I want to talk to you about inequality in schools and race. In a conversation about how to deal with segregation in schools back in 1975, you told a reporter, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation. I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. You said that some 40 years ago, but as you stand here tonight, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in this country? So I just want to read you Biden's answer. Well, they have to deal with the, look, there is institutional segregation in this country, and from the time I got involved, I started dealing with that. Redlining, banks, making sure that we are in a position where... Look, we talk about education. I propose that what we take is those very poor schools, the Title I schools, triple the amount of money we spend from 15 to 45 billion a year, give every single teacher a raise to the equal of getting out of $60,000 level. Number two, make sure that we bring into the help with the stud. The teachers deal with the problems that come from home. The problems that come from home, we need... We have one school psychologist for every 1,500 kids in America today. It's crazy. The teachers are required. I'm married to a teacher. My deceased wife is a teacher. They have every problem coming to them. Make sure that every single child does, in fact, of three, four, and five-year-olds go to school. School! Not daycare, school! We bring social workers into homes of parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not what they... It's not that they don't want to help. They don't know what... They don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television. Excuse me. Make sure we have the record player on at night. The phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school or a very poor background will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I like that he amended himself. No, not the television, the record player. Like, let's get in the 21st century here, you know? (laughs) I think a sleeper hit in this one was when Biden began, like, his opening statement, 
he tried to invoke the moon landing. That was his oh, opener yeah. in a real appeal to like boomer nostalgia, right? Because because Biden's right. supporters are like mostly over the age of fifty, right. and and he tried to say the moon landing, and he said like the moon shot. Yeah, <laughs> the, that thing you just read sounded a bit like a Samuel Beckett play. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. Although it, I think there is some consensus that this was his strongest debate performance yet. I mean, uh, well, but I mean, I think though you see in these defensive reactions. I mean, right. So right as the debate was finishing, they pivoted to you know the the gurus, you know the pundits that were gonna right do the who are the people who represent yeah right America, right the people that know best and the guy they led with was Rahm Emanuel right. like probably one of the most noxious, toxic, and reactionary you know Democrats in America. And uh, he led the charge in saying that, you know, Julian Castro was just very inappropriate in, in, in going after Biden this way. And I think that shows like, that, you know, these people are incredibly defensive about Biden, right? They want to make it taboo to just even obliquely refer to the fact that he is falling apart, that he is making up stories that are patently untrue. We read one of them on the last episode or the one before, that he is just lying about his record on Iraq. He is slurring words. He's having gaffe after gaffe. His advisors are quite literally trying to limit his time in the public eye because they're worried that he's going to screw up. And, you know, elements in the pundit class and people within the Democratic establishment want to make that a taboo thing to bring up. Well, it really shouldn't be. Well, I mean, uh, I think these people are taking a brave stance against ageism. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, they would never seek to criticize a Democratic candidate for his advanced age. <laughs> Though we just spent about 20 minutes trashing some of the punditry on this debate, I mean, I do think we were right to do that. Uh, you know, I do want to say something just as, you know, somebody who has had to write about these things and who has watched a whole lot of them. Um, I mean, not only have I watched them in this election cycle, I've watched them in every other election cycle. Uh, I've even, believe it or not, during kind of my like, you know, political junkie phase, my less kind of ideologically clarified phase, you know, mm -hmm. voluntarily watched election, like old election debates, like for fun. Oh, my and God. And been fascinated by them. Right. I want to say that it is genuinely difficult to to write about these things and to have anything novel to say about them because they are in many respects, deeply superficial events. And I think there's really two ways of reacting to this and neither kind of really quite quite works. The first is to do what a lot of pundits do and to absorb them kind of very credulously to kind of, you, you take on board, you just kind of accept, you just kind of accept that these things are a spectacle, but then you celebrate that. So that's, those are the people that really get off to Amy Klobuchar saying that something is all foam and no beer or like a house divided cannot rule or, you know, whatever, you know, the hackneyed line is. So that's that's one way of doing it. Those are the people that, that really enjoy these platitudes about how it's time to focus on what unites for a change, you know, that kind of thing. But then the other the other kind of opposite way of absorbing it is with kind of a withering cynicism where you don't take any of it seriously. And that is, I think, a superior position to the first one, because at least it understands uh, something that like the crystallis of this, of this world don't, which is that like most of the people who get into a debate like this are like not to be trusted and they have bad commitments and they're craven sellouts usually. Not always, but usually. And I mean, for me, this is why the only way that you can really watch these things or anything like them, and really the only way you can kind of watch electoral politics, mainstream politics at all and not go crazy is by having some kind of ideological foundation to, to fall back on. 
people go on and on about you know pundits when i say people i mean pundits they go on and on about you know bernie sanders is always yelling he's always repeating the same messages over and over again he's droning on about poverty he's, uh, you know, uh, he had a hoarse voice in this right debate. right i'm he's, sure we'll be he's always yeah he's always he just he you know he has this message discipline he always says the same thing um which it's funny i don't think they would use the words message they discipline. probably wouldn't uh you're right that's a little too too favorable um and you know back in 2016 the problem with him was that he was too much of a wonk they they sort of abandoned that one after a while. They, <laughs> they switched it to actually Hillary Clinton's the wonk. Um, anyway, it's a litigating an old grievance I have with the pundits there. But, you know, they're always complaining that, you know, he's just he just drones on. He says the same thing over and over again. But the, the virtue of having of like having a consistent position, having consistent convictions, especially I mean, in, in his case, they're they're in the minority view or they have been for, you know, much of the time that he's been in politics, all the time he's been in politics. The virtue of having specific commitments, whether you're in politics or whether you're kind of a follower or an activist in politics, is that it doesn't matter if the same message is repeated over and over again, because if it's the right one, if it's a message you think people need to hear, everything else kind of melts away, right? You stop thinking in these superficial terms of optics. You're less likely to be obsessing about, you know, the day-to-day polling, although, of course, like, who among us? But, you know, you're, the, the superficialities that dominate kind of punditry start to matter a lot less to you. That is how I engage with politics, and it's it's how I keep sane. You know, you bring a moral and an ethical perspective to bear on, on this. You keep it as rooted in ideas and moral convictions as possible. And even, even an inane spectacle like what we just watched is something that you can stand when your perspective is represented by someone. And you, and you think a lot less about the superficial optics, which, you know, will be talked about a great deal in the next 24 or 48 hours, um, and it will be completely forgotten in 72. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, a, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. There's Thank so you, much. We, no, I'm, I'm going to go like the rest of them do. Finally, before we go, I just wanted to make note of the fact that the federal election has officially begun in Canada. Uh, it, things are a little different here in Canada than the U.S. Our election <laughs> they last is, a few weeks. <laughs> is only officially a few weeks, although, of course, it's, it's longer than that, yeah. unofficially. The beleaguered, once beloved, now, Not by me. now struggling Justin Trudeau is facing the fight of his life up against the not especially beloved conservative leader, Andrew Scheer. Mm-hmm. Canadians everywhere, I think, are looking at these two leaders and saying, is this is this all there is? Is this the choice we have to make? But fortunately, there's there's another party out there that offers a progressive vision, another another party that that offers that offers hope, a, a vision of change. And I, of course, refer to the Green Party. Led by Elizabeth I knew May. I knew where Will was going with that joke. We, Will and I have been doing this for such a long time that I can read his mind. I knew exactly where he was going with this joke. Uh, no, folks. OK, we're going to get to the Canadian election. In fact, there is a documentary about Justin Trudeau's famous boxing match which maybe we should do that next week yeah why not uh, um i've been looking forward to doing that one doing that one for a while um I, you know i obviously can't watch two debates 
I chose the American one tonight. I'm going to watch the Canadian one first thing tomorrow morning, um, and I will uh, maybe find something to say about it if I can. But we'll be talking about Canada stuff, um, you know, in the weeks ahead, if only as kind of a respite from uh, the exhausting uh, American political process. Now watch this drive. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? Station KGOM is very happy and proud to bring you a debate between the candidates who are running for mayor of Gotham City. I believe the Penguin will lead off the debate. Friends and fellow citizens, I want to give you my solemn word that there will be no mudslinging in this campaign, unless, of course, my opponent slings it. But I intend to stick to the issues. Now, what are the issues? There is only one. Batman. Who is he? Who is this acrobatic clown who somersaults around Gotham City in a, <laughs> a ridiculous costume? I suggest that behind that mask, Batman is in reality a dangerous criminal. Why else does he wear a mask? Why else does he conceal his past? Would you think about that a moment, my friends? Whenever you've seen Batman, who's he with? Criminals. That's who. You look in the old newspapers. Every picture of Batman shows him with thugs and with thieves and hobnobbing with crooks. Whereas my pictures show me always surrounded by whom? By the police. I associate of the law. Listen to those lies. Oh, that penguin. He's as crooked as a warp shillelagh. Now, which man do you want to run, Gotham City? A man like myself who is always in the company of the law? Or a man like Batman who rubs elbows with the worst elements of this city and who is undoubtedly a desperate criminal himself? Think about it without rancor. And remember this, no mudslinging in this campaign. Yeah, Penguin, that a boy. Thank you very much. <laughs>